Well, good morning, church family. Let's stand as we begin with the song. Bow before the lion and the lamb. Oh, 
Well, in a section of Scripture, as Paul speaks to the Ephesians about the salvation that they have received in Christ, he says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our sin separates us from our Creator. None of us naturally are before Him in anything but the sin and the corruption and the darkness of our our souls. And yet Christ, because of His blood, because He came to give His life on our behalf, brings us near. I hope you're in Christ and you know Him because by Him taking our place, we are brought near to God. And so we have such, such reason to be thankful for that as we gather together, we can be near the Lord, our Creator, our Sustainer, and our Savior. And so I hope this morning as you, as we have gathered together, you would hear from Him, you would see Christ high and lifted up, and you would know He is near because of what He has done on the cross taking our punishment in our place. So welcome. If you're a visitor, I'd like to extend a welcome to you. should be a card right in front of you. Uh, if you would, take that, fill that out. We'd love if you would give us the opportunity to uh, reach out to you and share a little information with us and drop that in the offering baskets on the back wall on your way out this morning as you're, as you're offering. We would greatly appreciate that opportunity. Uh, my name is Matthew, one of the pastors here, Faith Family, one of the elders, and uh, would like to extend that welcome and that request if you would uh, drop that in the basket on your way out. So this evening we'll be having uh, a special service of ordination uh, that uh, the deacons who've been nominated and uh, voted and uh, qualified, approved, will be coming forward for ordination. And it's a special time uh, together uh, to, uh, to recognize what God has said in Scripture of the office of those who have been called out to serve the church and commissioning and challenging and charging and praying together uh, for, for what God has done and what he will do. And so I want to encourage you to join us back at 6 o'clock this evening. If you're a deacon, if you're ordained, I want to invite you at 5 o'clock uh, for a, a time together with those who are to be ordained uh, for encouragement, question, answer, and uh, just a, a council time uh, with those deacons uh, at 5 o'clock. So I want to invite you there. And so uh, that will be occurring tonight, and then we'll be back Wednesday night. And uh, those, are, those are the kind of things happening uh, in the next several days. So we've been memorizing Scripture, and we have two verses in Ephesians 1 to look at this month. And I want to encourage you to memorize them to commit them to memory, to take time during the week to read over them and just familiarize yourself uh, with the verses that it would be etched and chiseled on your soul, on your heart, that the Lord would use them at times of need and that it would conform your mind to his word and to what he has said and done. And so, uh, as is our practice, let's read them out loud and uh, look at these verses in Ephesians 1. So follow with me. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, how you have lavished your grace upon us. None of us merit and deserve your forgiveness, your mercy. None of us deserve your attention outside of your judgment due our sin. Yet you, in your triune wisdom, your, perf- your perfect plan, sent your Son, the Son, the second person of, your, of the Trinity, to come and take upon himself our debt, our sin, and to give his perfect pure, infinitely valuable life for us, for me, to stand in my place. God, I thank you for your gift, your grace. I thank you, Lord, that you look upon us and extend mercy and grace in Christ. And so, Father, would you help us this morning as we gather around the table that displays this sacrifice given, that you would draw our hearts, that, God, you would convict us, you would illuminate things in our lives that we have entertained this week that are contrary to your ways and your will and your word. And that, God, we would be convicted of that by your spirit and your word and you would draw us into repentance. And that, God, as we take of these Uh, this bread and this juice, that as we partake of this table, that God, we would be drawn into repentance and restoration by your grace. That God, your people that have gathered, Lord, would would see you and would trust in you and would be renewed by grace. And that Lord, if there are some here who don't know you, that you would draw them into Lord, right standing with you because of Christ and because of faith in him. And so, Father, would you guide us this morning? Would you speak to us this morning? Would you be with Wyatt this morning? Fill him, Lord, with your spirit and use him as your mouthpiece, as uh, as he proclaims your word. That, God, we would hear your very words. We would be drawn to see you and to know you. And so, Father, would you be with us this evening as you have called men to serve, that, God, you would prepare them, that, God, you would challenge them, and that, God, you would use them in your your body, your church, for your glory and the good of your people and the good of this community and of your world. And so, God, would you lead us? God, would you guide us? And God, would you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Let's stand and sing of that gift, the fact that Jesus paid it all for our sins. I hear the Savior say, Watch and pray, find it be thine all in all. It's Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain.
It is only you. Lord, the gift of your son to pay the price for our sin. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can turn to you when we are hopeless, when we are broken. When all seems lost, we have hope. And it is you. You are our hope in life and in death, in good times and in bad times. Father, you are our hope. So God, help us to turn to you. Help us to look to you. To be able to say that it is well with our soul, whatever may come. God, I pray for Wyatt as he comes to bring the word. Lord, that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, that we can leave this building better equipped to be your church. That we can show love to others well. And Lord, be examples of you. That whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it to the glory of your name to glorify you. So Lord, help us to 
to stay focused, to learn, and to grow in a relationship with you today. Father, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. good to be in God's house this morning. I feel bad for y'all a little bit though. Last week's sermon, that was, that was like fine wine. And today you're going to get Sam's Choice Cola. So I'm Dr. Ab, Dr. Thunder. So that's what you get. I'm kidding. Uh, If you will turn to Romans 12 verses 9 through 13. You're going to be mad at me because we're going to be doing a lot of flipping. This isn't the main passage. This is just the first passage. So get your thumbs ready to to flip through a lot today. In our, uh, well, first of all, let me say thanks to everybody who's been uh, lifting up prayers for me. I appreciate that. I think most people are wondering if I'm going to be able to make it through, and I am too. So we'll find out together. But in this uh, pastor search that we've been going through, as we talk to certain candidates, we get kind of a question that comes up. And I think it's a great question that we get back to us. It says, how, how is your church known? How is Faith Family Fellowship known? How are we known in the community? How are we known to our own people? And I think it's a great question. And I think it's a question I want to pass on to you guys rhetorically for a second. Think in your head, those one or two or three things that says, this is faith family to me. This is what I see in us. Think about those things. We're going to read this passage in Romans as Paul is giving some instruction to the Romans, and and it's actually a small section out of a much longer section of him describing the characteristics of of a healthy, godly church. And so as we read through, think about, okay, were the things that I came up with, are they on this list? Did I miss something? Was there some on this list that I would go, maybe that's, not our, maybe that's not our strengths. I don't know. But let's read real quick, okay? It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So let's let's pray before we go any further, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, you you alone are worthy of all glory and power and honor. And God, it is a joy to be in your house, with your people this morning, to be worshiping together in, in song and thanksgiving and over your word. And just as we sung earlier, God, I pray for, Lord, your, your lavish grace uh, this morning. Lord, on me as the speaker and on these people as the hearers, Father, that everything, everything that we say this morning be from your word, that it be from your will, God, that it glorify you 
And Father, that it meets your purposes in our hearts. Thank you for your, your many blessings, and we do thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. All right. So, how did your how did your list compare to to that list? Did, you, did yours come up, or did it not? Or did you see some others? And you went, I don't know. Maybe that's not that's not us. Paul again, he gives these believers in Rome guidance on the characteristics of this healthy, godly church, how they should act, how they should be known. And when I read it, I, man, I was convicted. I was challenged, in particular, on. In the ESV, it says constant in prayer, or your version may say devoted in prayer. Now, I pray, you pray, but are we devoted? Is it, is it such a part of our life that we're, that we're so consistent in it? We have some magnificent prayer warriors in this church, and people who you know, when that, when that prayer request comes across the email, you know they are on it, Right? They are, they are praying for the lost, they're praying for their friends, their family, their church, their leadership. They are, they are all over it. And I appreciate those people so much. But even for me, you may be like me to say, I don't know if I'm characterized as being devoted to prayer. So I'm going to go ahead and say this morning, I'm preaching to myself, and if you get anything out of it, praise the Lord. <laughs> so, but anyway, let's reflect, let's, let's look inward for a moment. When we have those life decisions, do we pray over them, big or small? Do we seek God's will in our prayers? Or do we just kind of make the best decision we can, pick a lane and go with it, and maybe God will help us get there when we get to the end? Or do we hear those prayer requests from our brothers and sisters in Christ and go, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you, and then we forget and we, we never do? Or maybe we get fatalistic Maybe we say, well, God in his sovereignty, he's going to do whatever he wants to do, so really what does it matter? Why do I I need to pray for anything? He's going to do what he wants to do. Well, how about this time in our church? I mean, we're looking for a pastor for the first time in 16 years. That's huge. Are we praying for that man, wherever he may be? Right? God's marked him out already. He knows who he is. Are we praying for him? Are we praying for his heart? Are we praying for his family? Are we praying for him to be following God's will? Are we praying for us as a body to be prepared ourselves for this man who's coming? Are we praying for our search team that we can hear from God? That we're Because we're not selecting, we're not deciding ourselves. We are trying to find who it is that God has already picked out. And that can be a burden sometimes. And many of you have said you're praying for us, and we appreciate that. Thank you a lot. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, preaching is child's play when compared to prayer. It is much easier to preach for one is talking to men, but when one is praying, he is talking to God. So again, as Paul tells the church in Rome, that we should be devoted to prayer. It, it should be our major, a major practice of our lives. And we see this in action in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Like I said, I'm going to be jumping around. So, But this is the early church. 
Verse 13, it says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. So here we have brothers and sisters in Christ united in devotion to prayer. And remember, this was right after the ascension, literally right after the ascension. This is one of the most crucial moments in the early church. This could go sideways quickly, right? I mean, when Jesus died, what did Peter do then? Like, guys, I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. So Jesus showed back up, of course, and now it's the ascension. He's gone. What are they going to do? What now? They devoted themselves to prayer. God had a plan and a will for his church, and with these faithful believers, through these faithful believers, God worked miracles to grow and fortify his church. And we are here. We are the church because of the devotion to prayer of those men and women. They were devoted to being reliant on him, devoted to being obedient, devoted to hearing from the Lord, devoted to casting all their cares upon him. And God not only answered their prayers, but he used them because of their their faithfulness and their dedication in his mighty works, beginning this very day because this winds up being the day of Pentecost. So as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, why do we struggle in prayer? Why why is it so hard for us? And that may be a message for another time because today I'd rather remind us of who it is that we are praying to. Hopefully that will help us and help what our attitude should be when we come to him in prayer and then the realization of the wonderful truth that we can come and pray to him. And I do mean that that is a wonderful truth. Let's look at God himself this morning. Let's look at his power. Let's look at his might. Romans 11, 33 through 36. It's one of my favorite passages. Oh, the depths of his riches, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. Kind of covers it, doesn't it? I mean, it's all things are from him and through him and to him. To him be glory forever. We see the supremacy of God. I'm going to jump over to Job real quick. Not real quick. We're going to spend a lot of time in Job for uh, this morning. Job 38, 1 through 5. And while you're turning there, remember what happened to Job. He had everything taken away from him. He had his riches. He had his children. He had his health taken from him. And for most of the book, Job is pretty faithful. He defends God. And then he gets to this point where he just kind of falls apart. <laughs> he thinks, this isn't right. I've been a righteous person. I've, I've, when there were wicked around me, I was upright. I took care of... Orphans and widows and the poor. 
I was a righteous man. Why did God do this to me? It's not right. And then in chapter 38, God shows up. He reminds Job of who Job is not, and he reminds Job of who he is. It says, the Lord answered to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid out the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. You're so smart. Surely you know. Who stretched that line upon it? And for the next couple of chapters, God goes on reminding Job of the beauty and the wonder of his creation and the, the engineering, the details, the intricacy with which God created it, both in beauty and for the utility of us as people to be able to use it and, and live here. <laughs> and did he, you would think the way he's saying it is like God poured sweat over a, like, and chiseled it out of rock for years and years and years, but how did he create the earth? In a moment, in a moment, he spoke it into existence with all of that intricacy and all of that detail. That's the power of God. Let's look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And this passage is about Christ. And people in Colossae, that church in Colossae, struggling with people telling them that Jesus is not. Jesus was just a man. He's not anything special. I mean, he, you know, he was a good guy, yes, but he's, he's not anything special. And Paul sets them right. He gives them truth about the preeminence and who Christ is. He said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might have first place over all things. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see the power, you see the authority that Christ has his preeminence above all things. Revelation 4, 9 through 11. We could have picked a couple of places in Revelation where there's praise to, the, to God. And verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In these passages we see the preeminence, the might, the power, the wisdom, the holiness of God. It's really something that should make us tremble when we think about it. And yet... This mighty, holy God also knows you, loves you, desires you. 
look at Isaiah 43.1. We talked about this passage quite a bit when Joel, that morning Joel retired. Such a wonderful verse. It says, but now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine, You're mine. So this same God that Paul says he, everything is from him and through him and to him, that same God looks on us and says, you're mine. I bought you with my son's blood. You are now my child. We forget about that, don't we? We take it for granted. The creator of all existence wants that relationship with you. Think about that for a second, that amazing dichotomy. He wants to hear from you, and he wants you to hear from him. He wants to guide you and protect you and provide for you. Why? I, <laughs> I don't know. Except that that is his pure and holy nature. It's his loving kindness. It's his good pleasure. And he doesn't change. Why would we not want to talk to him? Why would we not? But if you want to hear something else that's kind of mind-blowing to you, it's kind of these dichotomies of God. Let's look at how people behave when they're in the presence of God. We're going to go back to old Job. Let's go back to chapter 40. God's been giving it to, to Job pretty good for a couple of chapters here, reminding him again of what he's done and who he is, the fact that he can do whatever it is he wants to, and it's still good. Job has the opportunity to respond. In verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. I am insignificant. What can I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. <laughs> I need to quit talking, he says. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will not, I will proceed no further. But God's not done talking to him, so God gives him reminder after reminder for the next couple of chapters until Job is able to respond again in chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He quotes God back in when we looked in verse, or excuse me, chapter 38, where God says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Joel says, uh, Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He goes back and quotes God again, Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job was complaining. He thought he had been righteous. He thought he had done the right things. And he complained about God. And when he saw God for real, when he saw him before him, very quickly <laughs> knew his place. 
And he had nothing. His righteousness that he thought he was standing on, he didn't have that anymore. He could see that was gone. I have nothing. I can do nothing but repent. Is that humility that comes out when we are before God? Isaiah 6, 5. Should have caught you before putting it up there, Nepha. This was our... This is our memory verse last month. Can anybody remember it? (laughs) Isaiah, you remember the the scene where Isaiah is before God and he sees the angels. You know, they have flying with one set of wings and covering their, their face and their feet with the other set. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy. The God of hosts. And Isaiah sees this and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I'm being pulled apart. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, if Isaiah could have dug a hole and buried himself right there, he would have have done it. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're seeing the judgment of those who reject God, especially those who have heard and then maybe given it thought but eventually rejected him. We see in verses 30 and 31, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands a living God. So we see in these verses when people are before God, when they see him for who he is, it causes fear and awe and honor and more fear. Eventually we know every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But for some that won't even be done in celebration. It's going to be done in anguish and sorrow because the judgment's been handed down. God is worthy of all glory, all praise, and he is not to be taken lightly. He will not be mocked. He will not be taken for granted. His glory makes men cower. But what does Scripture also tell us? 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father it's given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So when all of creation trembles at him, his children have access to him. It's not exactly the same as Job and Isaiah when they were seeing him. But we have been given access through the blood of Jesus Christ. When that veil in the temple tore, we didn't need anybody to speak for us anymore. We didn't need another sacrifice. That was completed. As his children, we get to come to the Father ourselves and communicate with him and offer praise and confess our sins straight to him, offer supplication to him. It doesn't mean that we come nonchalantly or disrespectfully, right? You know, 
hey, Pops, can I have the keys to the car this weekend? You know, we, we're, we're not so bold. God is still God. He should be revered and respected. But to say that we can come with boldness and with humility, kind of a odd oxymoron, isn't it? But we do. We come hum- with humility because he's God. But we come with boldness because we know the promises that he's given us, the access that he's allowed and for us to, to come to him. Instead of fear, we can come with that confidence. He has opened the door. What great grace has been given to us just to be allowed to come to him. So hopefully in this we've seen the importance of prayer, how important prayer is to God when we think about what he's done to make a way for us to communicate with him. The links that he went. (laughs) Clearly he wants us to pray to him. Clearly he wants us to commune with him. So how do we do that? How do we pray? Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 5. In the first four verses, though, Jesus doesn't start with the prayer. He starts with our heart. He starts with our attitude before we ever enter into prayer because that's important. It's important that we are in the right position before him, and I don't mean physical position necessarily. But in verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, They've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is Jesus saying? How should we enter into that act of prayer? Again, it should be with humility. And it's, it's a personal, intimate discussion with God. It's not for in front of people for a show. It's not to be in front of people to be a demonstration of our great knowledge or our piety. It's to be in a quiet place of isolation, just you and God. That doesn't mean we can't pray while we're at Starbucks or while we're driving down the road, but an intentional focused prayer, we need to be able to be focused, right? In verses 7 and 8, he says, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. So we don't have to be eloquent. We're not there to impress anyone. God knows your heart. He already knows what you need. He knows it better than you can speak it yourself. So keep it simple. Keep it focused on him. You don't, you don't have to be the poet laureate. Just, just talk to him. Just talk to him. And then in verse 9, he gives us the model prayer. Pray pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, there's sermons and books written on this single passage, so I know that I'm just flipping off a little bit of the top, but this is a model prayer. It is a template for us. I don't think Jesus really meant for us to just recite it mundanely, right? Though most of my coaches growing up thought that's what we did. 
I never could understand getting cussed at and yelled at for two or three hours only to go, okay, guys, come on, we've got to do the Lord's Prayer. It's never, never made sense to me. But what do we see in this prayer? What does Jesus model to us? And he starts off in verse 9 and 10. He starts off with praise and adoration. He shows us that this prayer should start with God. It should start in praise and glorification of God the Father, God the Creator, the All-Knowing, the All-Powerful, the Redeemer. I could go on and on, and, and we should, right? If we, if we picked two or three attributes of God and prayed them to him every day, we'd, we'd probably still not cover them all, right? We've already seen several passages today where it points to his supremacy, his holiness, and his power. But we start here for a reason. If we start with God, it makes the whole prayer about God. It puts him in the right perspective. It puts him in the place of honor and majesty and elevation that he deserves. And I mentioned adoration. Do we in our prayers say, God, I love you? Do we say that enough? Can we ever say that enough? Next, in verse 12, we see confession and forgiveness, repentance. Because we've started with praise, we've elevated God already. And when we realize who we're talking to, realizing that it's God, we kind of tend to be like Isaiah, right? Like, I'm undone. It should be our reflex. We realize that we're talking to a holy, perfect God, and we're not him. Romans 5.1 says we are justified in Christ and we're now at peace with God. We're at the right relationship with him. Those sins are covered. We're not an, an enemy of his anymore. But even after salvation, what do we tend to do? Kind of like Job does. God's up here and we're down here, but we slowly kind of start thinking we're on the same plane with God. And while our sins are already covered it is our sins that help remind us God is perfect and we're not. And so he is magnified and we are brought low. And help us keep that proper perspective and placement of who God is. Next is thanksgiving. And you might notice there's not a verse that covers thanksgiving in that prayer. So I'm not trying to say I know better than Jesus is, does because he didn't include it. But we know that several places in scripture were told to come before God with a heart of gratitude, and an act of worship. There's just a few that we're going to look at. Psalm 6930, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 95.2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Is there joy in our prayers when we think about what he's done for us? There should be. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then in Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. So why is this thanksgiving in our prayers so important? Again, Thanksgiving itself, it magnifies God. 
It's an act of worship. It, it helps us to celebrate our reliance on him. It helps us to celebrate his faithfulness. And also, before we offer up our request, the remembrance of what God has done for us in the past and continues to do for us, that helps us to remain humble when we make our requests. And sometimes it may even help our spirit to, as we remember what God has done for us, maybe we're a little more content and grateful with our situation. We realize maybe that thing I was going to ask for, I don't really need it. God's taking care of me. He's, I should be content where I am. Maybe a place for us to celebrate those Ebenezers in our life, those landmarks where the Lord has shown himself to be faithful, where he's helped us in the past in our lives. But then we come to supplication that we see in verse 11 and 13. Notice what Jesus asks for in those verses. He asks first for our daily bread. And then he asks in verse 13 for our, or verse 12, for our forgiveness. To give us our debts as we forgive others. So we, we're kind of, we're given, or we're offering up a request for a physical need and then a spiritual need. Not only that we're forgiven, but that we're able to forgive others. I think that's important for us to recognize. And to go back to a question that we looked at earlier, if God's going to do what he wants to do, if he's going to carry out his will regardless, why do we ask him for anything? Well, why do you think? Because he tells us to. His command. But it also gets us back to the real what the real purpose of prayer is. It, it is for God's glory, his honor, and it's for our sanctification as we pursue what it is that he wants in our life. We have him in proper place. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our savior. And we are to be totally dependent on him. John 15, verse 7. This is in the middle of the vine and the branches passage. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. So is this the promise that if I ask for whatever I wish, God's going to give it to me? But what's the abiding mean? God is, not, God is not a genie granting wishes. But when we're in communion, when we're abiding in Christ, his desires become our desires. So when we ask for our desires, which are really God's desires, he grants them to us. That's the purpose of abiding, so that we're wanting what he wants and we're so in tune with his will. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Sometimes when we have those anxieties, our worries and our concerns and we kind of forget what God's already done and he's saying look trust me lay them at my feet I'll take care of you and the next time we have that worry and we remember what he did last time what does it help our faith this grows our faith we can we're, we're more inclined to trust him and lay those concerns at him at his feet next time because he knows that he's going to be faithful we always have to pray in this manner. Does prayer have to be so formulaic? No, not at all. This is just a way to help set our hearts 
in a correct alignment before God so that our perspective is correct. We can certainly pray those little quick prayers, those, God, give me patience. God, help, help me find that parking place. It may sound trivial, but he, he wants us to come to him. He wants us to rely on him. Some of the most beautiful prayers are when someone's coming to salvation and they don't even know what to say. Right? They don't have the words. They don't have the religious words. All they know what to say is, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Please. Or think about the most fervent prayers. The ones where we're on our face weeping. And the only thing we can think about is the intervention of God. Probably not thinking about exactly the form in which we're using prayer. And I don't want you to think that God is upstairs with a checklist. Oh, you left out Thanksgiving. That, that prayer is null and void. Try again tomorrow. It's not, it's not how he is. We have the promise that's in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Because sometimes we don't know what to say. We don't get it right. But 26 says, let the Spirit help us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. <laughs> Notice Paul says, he doesn't say when you don't know what to say. What does he say? You, you don't know. <laughs> you know, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have this great encouragement that when we don't know the right words, and sometimes, you know, maybe we are being a little selfish, but the Spirit knows what we need, and he groans for us. He intercedes for us. He fills in those gaps with what we don't even know to pray for. God, the creator and sustainer of everything. Everything you can imagine and the things that you can't. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to be his child. He wants you to communicate. He wants to communicate with you as a father to child. He wants us to communicate to him and rely on him as a child to a father. The... the <laughs> the immensity of that simple truth. We take it for granted. We rush through prayer like it's a formality or some kind of Christian requirement, a duty. Do we even treat it as if we're truly talking to God? Ultimately, our prayers are about God himself and who he is in our life and our complete, complete reliance on him. I pray that God shows us all and grows us into an intimate relationship with him in prayer. I ask Matthew to come down. And you may say, I don't, I don't know what that relationship is. I haven't experienced that. To think that God Almighty wants to have a relationship with me. He wants me to be his child. I don't understand that. Matthew and I will be down front. If you'd like to come talk to us about that, we'd love to. But you may be like, 
like I am, like I was when I started studying this, to say, I don't, I'm not devoted to prayer. I don't think about prayer the way I should. I enter it too casually. Or I don't enter it enough at all. And certainly you can, you can pray where you are. The altar is open. This is not a place for show, but certainly if this is a place where you need to come and say, God, I'm sorry, I, I have taken this for granted because this is an important time in the, in the life of our church and we need to be devoted to prayer. So um, you're welcome to come down.